Sporty. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. For Dom Jolly, travel is in the blood. From a very young age, he had something that in his recent book, The Hezbollah Hiking Club, he describes as a curiously paradoxical existence between a very posh boarding school and a war zone. He dreamt of being a foreign correspondent before becoming a comedian, investigated the world's most unlikely holiday destinations in his travel book, Investigating Dark Tourism, and for his second travel book, travelled the world in search of mythical monsters such as Bigfoot and the Yeti. Not one to do things in any conventional manner, for this episode of The Big Travel Podcast, I'm getting a tour around Oxford in Dom Jolly's car. We are traveling. Literally traveling. We are traveling, but we're in a car and we're traveling. The problem is we're traveling through Oxford, not Botswana or somewhere that was exciting. I feel a bit like I'm with James Corden. (laughs) Thanks. Well, we're not going to be singing. We are doing a carpool. Yeah, I can sing, but really badly. Yeah. What would you sing if if we were doing karaoke right now? Oh God, something. I'm a goth, so probably something by The Cure. You don't look like a goth. Oh, very big goth. I literally looked more like Robert Smith than Robert Smith for ten years. But you grew up in a quite a warm country for I a did. while. I did, but it's, I grew it doesn't up in work being a goth. Well, actually, it does. Warm, it's does one it? of the weird things about goths is you have goths in England that are Robert Smith. Then you have every hot country has one goth that stands by the beach melting, looking a bit uncomfortable. And then you have goths in America that are kind of like Marilyn Manson and the people that did Columbine were goths, supposedly. So I do fit into Great the goth role genre. Models, really, <laughs> yeah. really, really good role yeah. models to I actually, I'm so much a goth that I've always wanted to make a goth documentary because I was a goth and I have no idea why I was a goth. I've seen so many documentaries on punk but not on goth and I've even got the name Young, Dumb and Full of Glum or like That's it. Me in the Corner. See, <laughs> No spotlights. No, yeah. Uh, so did you do the makeup and everything like that? The makeup yeah, the badly. That's the joy. I had crimpers. I had eyeliner. I got savagely beaten in Be- up in Beirut for being a goth. Which was probably quite a light thing to happen to you in Beirut, but yeah. Well, because people were, as we were speaking before I press record, getting blown up all around you. So I think yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Beirut and Lebanon is a place of travel. It um, is. Should we start there? As we're taking off, we're not taking off, we're, uh, <laughs> oh, it's a travel journey. Well, this is odd confused. because we're driving into Summertown now in, in, in Oxford. And weirdly, when I grew up in Lebanon, uh, I, I stayed there till I was seven. And then the Civil War started in 75. And I went for one year to a Quaker high school above Beirut in a place called Brumana, uh, where I now found out I was at school with Osama bin Laden. Yes. For a year. I read that. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, he was 16, I was six. 
we were there together and I, we, obviously I didn't meet and I don't remember him and then after that I went here to the Dragon School in Oxford so I spent half my youth in, in Oxford which is the kind of quietest most civilised dull place on earth and then I'd go back to Beirut which to me was so exciting and amazing so that's given me my slightly schizophrenic but it was as exciting and amazing it was a war zone it, well, it was, was a war zone, a war zone, but like all those... Well, of course they're going to stop. It's a red light. Jesus Christ. Do they recognise you, maybe? What? Does that 10-year-old boy recognise you? I don't know. You? Should we have a bit of road rage? Yeah. <laughs> well, stop telling people to stop at red lights. It's pretty obvious. Right, we're off already. <laughs> bit of road rage. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, but it was a war zone. So it might have... It sounds exciting. Well, it was. And actually, it's what... It's what my new book, which I, I'm not doing that to plug it, but it... It is what my new book's about. I've kind of milked growing up in Lebanon for so long. Because when I grew up in Lebanon, it was very terrifying. 75 to 76 was a proper civil war. And there were periods where, you know, we had to leave by boat to Cyprus because we couldn't get over the green line to Beirut. I'd be at school and we'd be being shelled or we'd be in the basement of our house and, you know, shells landed in the garden and stuff. But it was the most amazing and still is the most amazing country I've ever lived in. And we were half an hour to the beach and out of the ski slopes, the best food in the world. The Lebanese are just fantastic. So I kind of feel I've milked... I mean, it's weird. I, I know that it was a really dangerous and weird place to live, but it was also incredibly enjoyable, and I've never enjoyed living anywhere else more. So my n- book is more about saying, you know what, even though I've called it the Hezbollah Hiking Club, it's a love letter to Lebanon. You know, I, Lebanon is an extraordinary country, especially now. I've always wanted to go, and every time, been? no, I haven't been, and every time I've almost gone, yeah. something's happened to yeah. like put me off. And now I've got very young children, and it doesn't. I don't know. It well, it's, it's like kind of the thing I loved about Lebanon is the fact that you could go there, have the best holiday ever, come back, everyone go, "Oh, you're in Lebanon. That's a bit dangerous," and you go, "Yeah, but I'm kind of tough. I'm, you know, really, I don't see danger me." And also, there'd be no one there. You'd go to somewhere like Balbet, which is the literally the biggest Roman complex of temples in the world and you'd be the only person there and I think I've got to an age now where I think actually that's Lebanon's problem is it's great for me to be selfish about it and no one goes there but it's because no one's writing anything good about Lebanon and it's actually the place you should be travelling to right now I mean it's within its size which is you know everywhere is measured by the size of Wales but it is you know I think <laughs> or a football qu- pitches or yeah, it's the quarter of the size of Wales it's, it's topographically the most different place I've ever been to apart from maybe Morocco it's like everything just every valley changes and it's got amazing mountains the beach it's got incredible cities the food is incredible if you're into politics and history like I am well literally everyone is anyone has fought there you know I was uh, watching that uh, you did a nice little video that accompanied your on my iPhone on your iPhone how amazing are iPhones well yeah really very very good and it was uh, documenting your the the journey that you well it was really for journalists who decide to interview me the day before and I know they're not going to have time to read my book <laughs> so it's, yeah. no, but also I just wanted to film it because the one thing you can't get across to people in Lebanon people still think always when you say Lebanon they think Middle East, they think desert they think camels, you know, they think the usual cliches. And Lebanon looks like the south of France. Well, I was going to say Switzerland. And in my head, I'm thinking, wow, that looks like Switzerland. And as I was watching the video, he says, look, it's just like Switzerland. I was like, bingo. That's almost like one of those... That's the where I went si- school. Is that your school? That, no, that's where I went to school, just down there, yeah. Oh. But, um, 
well, it was. It used to be Beirut. Uh, Lebanon used to be known as the Switzerland of the Middle East. And now, Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, personally speaking, I don't want to go to Switzerland. It's a kind of pretty <laughs> boring place. And Jolly, Canton, my name comes from. Guns, from don't they? Yeah, it comes from Switzerland. Does so, it? But why me, is that then? What's the uh, What's the Swiss connection? Uh, well, my I don't know. My great 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 grandfather was from a place called Moudon above Lausanne, and they were Huguenots, and they ended up in the east end of London in about 1650. Uh, because they were persecuted and then I think someone did something a bit dodgy and so they had to leave England and they ended up, uh, I had three generations living in Smyrna in Turkey and then one of them left and ended up in Beirut so we kind of slowly ended up in, in Beirut From London though, that's From all right and then you, you yeah, made yeah, yeah. The, the way yeah, back have, yeah. you, have you done it? who do you think you are? No, I haven't. Oh, you'd be amazing. I know, but one of the problems with who do you think they are is they like you to know nothing about your past. Yeah, I always And actually, think that. I don't know too much. There's so much more to discover, but I think I know just too much. And also, I'm not famous enough anymore, so no, I need to go back up again, so we'll see what happens. So, I think that's quite a good place to pick up on is the, uh, the Hezbollah hiking club. club. Yeah. Everyone in Lebanon hates that I've called it that. Oh, no, it's, that, no they, they can take the joke. No, no they can't. Not the joke, but. but they can't because they're all like, no, you've done it again. Like, you know, there's a picture of me with a bullet hole in the front. And that is a picture I took there because we were walking through this beautiful village. And suddenly I find this shot up bus at the side of the road. And it's got bullet holes all through the, the windscreen and through the front seat little hint of blood and then just below it on the front of the bonnet it says welcome to Lebanon and I thought if anywhere if a bus summed up the Lebanese sort of weirdness it's that and but there's why have they why have they left it there like that because this is I'm sort of jumping forward now because yeah. it's something else I want to talk to you about but I remember going to the to Cambodia and Phnom Penh oh, the course, yeah. S21 I've been there yeah and yeah. they've just I know because you, you wrote a, a great book that sort of included a lot of those things yeah. I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself but that's right why have they just left it there like the blood and the you know it's not a tourist attraction they've just sort of walked off and left it and well genuinely that. Lebanon uh, the Lebanon has a serious litter problem so you know unless someone's going to pay blood covered buses and things and, and someone's, unless someone's going to pay le- uh, someone in Lebanon to clear it up they're not going to clear it up I mean it's an unwittingly brilliant tourist destination um, but yeah no I don't they just you know Lebanon is like that it's like well, who's paying me to clear this? And if I'm not, I'm not going to do I'm it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, we're just coming into like the beautiful heart of this Oxfordshire. This is the heart of Oxford. Oxford, yeah. sorry, Oxford yeah. City as we're well. We're near the Bodleian now. And it's stunning. And this is. Do you think people think we're making this up? Or actually in a studio just making car noises. I'll make sure to put some beeps on. Well, and, you, you got know, a bit of road rage yeah. there. That was good. Yeah, we've had yeah. a bit of road rage. Well, that was bloody annoying. I hired like, those people, by the way, good. to come into the studio well, and give us some pretend road rage. So we're at the Sheldonian now. Do you know Oxford at all? Uh, yeah, I've been a few times, yeah. I used to do travel news for Oxford on the radio. Did you really? Yeah, but it was all done from London. I was doing, I was pretending yeah, I was just here. Just make it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had no idea what I was talking about. But it's, uh, it must have been a contrast coming, you know, living here and then going back to It was honestly holiday. the biggest contrast ever. Like the, I remember the, probably the third night I arrived at the Dragon School, which was, you know, I literally was at school with most of the current Tory cabinet, Radiohead and Tim Henman. And... Uh, they're, they're all, all of the reputation all, for being wild. Yeah, they're all crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they all arrived here. So Actually, the Tories are now. probably the craziest out of a lot of those. They are. Well, they are now, and, aren't they? So we're outside Bailey and I'm doing a U-turn. But anyway, so I turned out and on the third night in my dorm, I did what everyone does in Beirut. If you're at school in Beirut, you collected shrapnel, which I did. <laughs> and you collected shrapnel and bits of bullets. And I had a little suitcase that I'd brought with me thinking... Full this, of you know, this is going to be this is going to make me quite a, a big player at school because it would, and you know, I had quite a good collection. And on the third night, I flipped open my little briefcase and started showing 
people in the dorm, and one of them went off running and told the housemaster. Anyway, I was caned for having it, and it was confiscated. And I thought, right, this is a very different sort of place. In Lebanon, I'd have been, you know, worshipped for having this amazing collection of war paraphernalia. It's, Whereas uh, here it didn't, so it was different rules. But my what I did in the holiday essay was much better than most, because most of them was <laughs> went to pony club, you know, met uncle who was foreign secretary. For me, it was like, you know, went into the Syrian desert, went to Palmyra, spent some time in a basement. You know, it was great. And Syria is another place that is just, you know, I feel Syria's like my, my favourite country. Syria's Syria. my favourite country on earth. If, 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 when people ask me, what is your favourite country on earth? And I'm not doing it just to saves be contrary. Me, saves me from yeah, doing that. It's so, Syria. I mean, yeah. I love Syria. We used to go to Syria to get away from the war. And my dad was a sort of amateur archaeologist and we'd go to Damascus and then we'd go to Palmyra, which is my favourite place on I'm earth. I'm loving your co- correct pronunciation because I would have probably said Palmyra. Everyone says Palmyra. It's my two things I hate the most. Palmyra and people go Homs. It's Homs. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I say Damascus, not Damascus. I reckon you're probably right. So I don't know if I'm right, but it's what I grew up with, so I'm sticking with it. But I love Syria. Syria is, and that, it just broke my heart. But then I grew up in Lebanon, so now you've got a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, so everything's inverted, but that's the Middle East. Well, again, with your recent book uh, about the hiking tour across Lebanon, you, yeah. you saw the Syrian refugee camps. Well, you can't avoid them. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're big in most towns, and then all the way along the Bakar, you just have these massive tented villages. And it's just incredibly sad. It's crazy. I mean, Lebanon's a small enough country anyway. And do you to, feel like visiting them, or can you not? Because you, know, you do see people. Oh, you can't just pop in. It's not no. even in a dark tourist way. It's, it's not something you can or I would do. Uh, much so, I don't like to talk about my charity work. I am an ambassador for Save the Children, and the only reason I am is because they asked me when the Syrian refugee stuff was happening, and I was thinking, well, at least this is something I vaguely know about. So I've been to Zatari uh, refugee camp, which at the time was this massive camp on the Jordanian-Syrian border. Now I think it's the fourth biggest Syrian town in the world. I mean, it's insane. And it's the people I went to see there seven years ago are still there, stuck in these camps. So it's, it's crazy. seven years stuck It's in crazy. I mean, there were years. kids I met there that have grown up in a refugee camp. And what and, are the conditions like? Well, the conditions for a refugee camp are not bad. Uh, but it's still a refugee camp. It's not a place you want to live, live in. I mean, you know, I grew up in Lebanon where one of the big problems was you had Palestinians living in Palestinian refugee camps and they were stateless already and growing up in a camp. That's just not a place for a kid to grow up or anyone to grow up in. And everyone just sort of forgets about it. And this idea of, of dark tourism, I yeah. think, is very interesting. And you wrote a book about it. I did. The original, um, before the original Netflix book. stole yes. it off me. Yeah. Did they? Of ah, course they did. I pitched it to bloody... Ah, after I'd written it. the book properly. Bastards. And I didn't want to do it as a TV show. I really wanted to show that I could write books and that I wasn't just a celeb on the make for a free holiday. So I wrote a couple of travel books. My first one was The Dark Tourist. And it did really well. And so I did go to Netflix... Uh, and pitched it as a right now I've done the book let's do the series and they said oh it's really interesting we'll get back to you and they never did and then very strangely a year and a half later this programme came out called Dark Tourist not The Dark Tourist see how different that is that is and there's went, nothing you can do is there no and there's nothing I can do about what's it this, I just what's this it. wall going along, going along here that we're oh, I could bullshit now but yeah, I have no idea yeah you have idea. no it's idea it's a bit like a prison doesn't it well it's a college obviously but which one college prison know. I'm going to call it Fire Access College no that's the sign <laughs> I don't know I there's think a sign it, saying private there it might be it's, that, it's a private college I think college. it's St John's it's one of the colleges from Oxford University. Yeah, we're now coming to the high street. Yeah. You didn't go to Oxford, did you? No, I failed my interview really badly. My dad went to Oxford, and he was at Oriel, and then oh look, this is Longwall Street, so I believe that's the Longwall 
college. And then I, I failed my... Uh, oh, I see, long wall. Yeah. <laughs> so it took me a minute to work that out. No, I failed my Oxford in- interview, and I went to SOAS, School of Oriental African Studies, to do Arabic and politics. And, uh, yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't, actually. What do you <laughs> wish you'd done instead? Well, I wish I'd gone somewhere apart from London, because London's just was so, so not a university experience, because I already lived there. Yeah. But uh, it was amazing. For I mean, it's the place you go if you're a diplomat or you're a potential spy that's where you go is so as to learn your languages and stuff god this is beautiful isn't it it's really beautiful and it's such a lovely sunny day as yeah. well for really this good for a podcast just really imagine if you can the views we well, can it is. see you'd be yeah. surprised and i'm sure you know this yourself paint a, a picture with words exactly paint it we're not doing it are we but uh, so it's a now, nice bridge it's a long wall it's not the bridge it's maudlin bridge we're now crossing maudlin bridge the bridge and this and is lots beautiful. of cyclists lots of cyclists a lot of japanese tourists who are bored after a day at bista, bista village oh they they did the announcements in. on the train in japanese oh my god it's well, amazing i'm assuming it was japanese no it is Japanese. It's incredible. That train from Marylebone down to Oxford Parkway is the Bista Village Express. I'm, a, I'm quite fond of a bit of Bista Village. Are you? Yeah, I don't I mind it. I think it's the worst thing on God's earth. Well, I've only been twice, so. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, so it's right. not as bad as, like, say, you know, the Tolseng Prison and all these, the places you visited for yeah. the, for dark, the dark tourists. So dark tourists, I went to. Do- the dark tourists, sorry. So, you know, the dark tourists. I think that came because I realised that I wasn't really, I love travelling, but I'm just really bad at lying on a beach or just I can't do normal travel and part of me is I think because I grew up in Lebanon I was obsessed with these places that were also supposed to be incredibly dangerous when Lebanon was happening in the 70s the main one being Cambodia when the Lebanese civil war was happening uh, the Khmer Rouge was happening and the whole uh, um, Cambodian experiment was going on and I always used to think I wonder is Cambodia as bad as I think it is is it just the killing fields or does it like Lebanon have actually a really nice part of it that you never hear about because it's not interesting for the news and I went there and it was fascinating it had so many similarities to Lebanon especially because they were both French colonies and they had the same sort of architecture but the weirdest thing about Cambodia was that there was a whole generation just gone if you saw anyone when I was traveling there between the age of about 30 and 60, you're thinking, well, how come you're not dead? Yeah. If you weren't dead, that meant you were probably part of the Khmer Rouge. Absolutely. It was very weird, because they distrusted all intellectuals and... It they distrusted everyone. It started yeah. off with the intellectuals in the end, and it was like, if you were wearing anyone, glasses, anyone, if you liked yeah, milk. You just, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But I, I went there, and it was actually probably the only place I got... When I, went, when I was there, I got obsessed with reading about it. Oh, you know, did you, you read The Bridge? You know, yes, I, I The read. most amazing yeah, thing. it's the most amazing So thing. my most amazing moment where I fell into being a good travel writer was I just went thinking, yeah, I'm going to experience it, and I read all those books, as I'm sure you did, and I read the book called The Bridge, and in it there's a particularly awful member of the Khmer Rouge, whose name I forget now, but he was the most brutal of them all, smashing babies against trees and stuff like that. And as I finished the book and I was getting to Phnom Penh I found out there was a war crimes trial going on and it was this guy and I managed to get into the, I mean I couldn't believe I got in I, I thought how do you get into a war crimes trial do you have to pre-book do you have to go on StubHub or whatever but I found out it was there and I got there and I was wearing shorts and they wouldn't let me into the war crimes trial because I was wearing shorts so I had to swap shorts with the trousers of the Cambodian guard who was about four foot tall I was going to say they <laughs> so were, they were shorts not anyway. very tall yeah. or so anyway I got bored. in and I had this incredible Adolf Eichmann moment of kind of reading about this guy who was pure evil and then you saw him and he was just he was just this really dull looking like he was an accountancy clerk or something and there was a moment where he turned around and our eyes met and I'm not milking it it was like 
this is crazy. I mean, this guy was up there with Nazis in the evil he did. And your eyes met. So first you felt, I've really had that connection with history, which I think my travel is about. But also you just thought, really? You're the guy? Like... And it made you think anyone is capable of that kind of it's, awfulness. That, that sort of evil. Yeah. That people... the, so Adolf Eichmann, when he was kidnapped by the Israelis and taken from, uh, I think it was Argentina, back to Israel and, and just sat looking so ordinary, and everyone said it was the Someone's banality the banality of evil, and it really was that. It was the only time I felt fear for no reason whatsoever when I went to see a nukeville, you know, the beach I didn't area. go to see a nukeville, that's one bit I didn't do. Why did you apparently feel fear? It's, apparently it's really changed now, but it was quite, it was still quite, um, you know, sparsely built when yeah. I was there. Apparently it's like, you know, sort of... Now it's the new Thailand. Apparently yeah. so. Yeah. But um, I went to, there was a hotel that had just opened, the Independent, spelt wrongly, and they've kept it. I love that, um, yeah. And it was in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. And well, two very scary moments. One, they were going back on it, and I'd been obsessed with reading about all these books, and I'd been into the prison, and the killing fields and yeah, found them very too. eerie and, and spine It's a weird journey, isn't it? Very weird. It's a weird thing to do as a tourist on your holiday, you know. So um, did you go there to holiday and then got into yes. it? Or were you into it before you went? Uh, a bit of both. But yeah. I went there to holiday. You know, I was yeah. lying on a beach for part of it. And yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, the, the I mean, it's difficult to go to like Cambodia that. and not... You've got to be a bit. It's, you've got to be a bit dim to go to Cambodia and not take that in, definitely, because it's just so part of every element of that country. But people are sometimes dim like oh, that. Oh, I know. I always I think hate like them. this with yeah. Cuba. You know, people oh that go God. and lie on a beach in the Cuba. The Kardashians when, when they went to Cuba. Jesus I, I, Christ! I miss that particular gem of. Uh, I've never of missed anything. I watch my history. my dark history is that I watch every bit of trash, <laughs> and the Kardashians will miss any interesting part of any country they visit. You can't just go to Cuba for the beaches, lovely, and say, oh, you know, yeah. there's the whole culture and the history and yeah, the yeah. politics and anything like that. Oh, so we were, we were going through the jungle on this tuk-tuk uh, to the independent hotel, <laughs> and um, the uh, it was just dark and eerie. It was almost like the jungle was closing in on me. I think I might have had something to smoke, to be honest. But, yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, you think the tuk-tuk driver, the local, you think, well, he's not scared, so yeah. I'm not going to be scared oh, either. Oh, God, that's a terrible but mistake. Then he, I know. He turned around to us and he said, you scared? Yeah. And I went, yes. And he said, so am I. And oh, I'm my like, oh, my God. I tell you, that's so funny you say that, because that's one of the things I always feel when I used to have a fear of flying. Yes. I used to think, well, you know what? It's not like the pilot got up this morning and thought, I'm going to die today. If he's OK, he's OK. And then you read about suicidal pilots oh, whose, whose door, wives have broken up with them and they fly into a mountain. Or when I went to Chernobyl, before it was fashionable... Um, yeah, it's very trendy now to go oh, to Chernobyl. God, it's crazy, it? yeah. yeah. But when I went to Chernobyl and I was like, well, I should have done some research on this. I don't know what type of radiation there was or whatever. And then I figured, well, actually, if someone's going to offer to take me in there and he's a local, he must know about it. Yeah, but then, then you turn halfway out like, you on the trip, shirt. I realised the guy was so dim that <laughs> he had no idea whatsoever. It's and his, his only safety thing was, uh, you have had children? I go, yeah, he goes, okay, it's no That's problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't great. Well, it's kind of like to live to yeah, see yeah, them, you know, yeah. into their teens at least. When yeah. I went to Chernobyl, the weirdest thing for me is I kind of, I'd read about it a lot because it was a big thing when I was growing up. It was my first sort of post-Lebanon geopolitical worry, you know, like on the news every day you'd hear this cloud is coming and it's... It's a right acid rain is falling in Sweden and it was that whole nuclear we're nightmare that we're all going to die. And then when what I was went, the cartoon when, uh, uh, when the wind blows, when the wind blows Raymond Briggs, who also mm. did Snowman, you know. So um, did he do Fungus the Bogeyman? He did well? do Fungus yes, the Bogeyman. Yeah, bang on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he went dark on yeah, when the wind blows. When the wind blows, freaked me out. I mean, it was really nihilistic and horrible. But when I went to Chernobyl, it was really odd. I thought this is. I was wandering around. I thought this is so weird. I kind of know 
my way around? Have I really read so much about this place that I know it? And I got to the stage where I was like, is that the swimming pool? And the guide was like, how do you know? And I suddenly realised I'd been playing Call of Duty a lot. (laughs) And on Call of Duty 3, I think, they've mapped the place, the town right next to Chernobyl so well that I knew my way around. And, of course, they were incredibly suspicious and thought I was some... I don't know what kind of spy they thought I was, but I'm always taken as some sort of spy. See, it is uh, educational then. Video games are educational. Well, now I'm trying to get my kid, my 14-year-old boy, off Call of Duty. And he goes, but it helped you with your travels. And, and of course, that bastard's just won a million pounds playing Fortnite. Yeah, that doesn't matter. So now he's like, if I was an Olympic athlete, you would not stop me. So, yeah, Yeah, it's terrible. But you're sitting in your room. But you might get a million. Yeah. We've um, just driven past a massive mosque. What was in that? What was, it? was it a mosque? I was wondering. It was a it massive was. mosque. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about it, but then I thought you don't know about that. You I don't know about that. I don't know. The long wall. You I didn't know the big. No, wall. I could have lied. You're a great tour guide. What are we going to sing? You know? I could have lied. <laughs> um, I hate tour guides, though. I mean, my hatred is tour guides. Like, I hate. I feel my mum always used to say to me, and she was a snob, but she always used to say, "We're not tourists. We're travellers." Oh yeah. So I've always yeah. had this, and I get that. Like, I hate the idea that why would you come somewhere interesting? And then just want to walk around in a massive group of people following someone with an umbrella. Yeah, I, I hate that. that kind of tourism. And, but it means that also in my travel books, I'm always massively uninformed because I refuse to take a guide. Because I go, I don't need a guide, I'll discover everything myself. And sometimes it's great to have a guide, as long as it's the right guy who, like, you know. I like, I like a guide book. I like to, uh, I like, I really, I'm a big fan of A Lonely Planet. You see, I have an issue with The Lonely Planet. I love The Lonely Planet, but for instance, I lived in Prague in 91. I was a diplomat, of all things. <laughs> and he turned up there and you realise that if you follow The Lonely Planet, you know, The Lonely Planet's deal was to say there's a very nice offbeat restaurant. But every single person that read The Lonely Planet would be in that restaurant. So it would be a good way to meet your fellow travellers. But it's not really a good way of making your own journey into a place because you're following The Lonely Planet. This is you? what Instagram it's is it, doing. It, to it's exactly now, isn't that. It? It's the TripAdvisor thing. So yeah, but I do love I love rough guides actually. I, I love the concept of the rough guide. I did a I did interrailing when I was eight, uh, 18, 87 or whatever. Oh, lucky you! I wanted to do it but could never get the cash together. I've done it since. The but, cash, but the it was cash. cheap as chips. I know, but then you had to leave work and you know. Oh, okay. Like that, yeah. Well, we couldn't do it when you were working, but this was like just left school. So your next book after the Dark Tourist, yeah. was an, another travel book. Wasn't yeah, it, it was Scary Monsters and Super Creeps which the first email I got about it was someone going, oh, you know that's the name of a David Bowie album and you're just nicking off him. I go, yeah, because yeah. people will come to that book and think, oh, is this a new David Bowie book? I was like, of course it's fucking David Bowie's name. I love David Bowie. That was the whole point of that it. That was the point of yeah, it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, so the idea of that was I kind of, the first book I ever properly read wasn't really a book and it was here in Oxford. This is so good that we're doing this in Oxford because actually this is where my travel stuff started. We've gone into, we've gone to the sort of grimmer side we're, of Oxford. Well, yeah, now, because we, we kept getting into into one-way systems, and I thought we'd end up getting arrested. We're in the old uh, the sort of Pizza Hut takeaway. Well, to me, if you're a tourist, place. you'd be in the Oxford where we were. But as a traveller, this you'd is where you come in Oxford. Yeah, to see the co-op. The co-op the is pizza amazing. Pizza Hut deliver. The Mediterranean fish bar. All of life is I here. I bet they do great fish yeah. and chips. All right, let's just pretend we're still driving soggy. through the middle. The but Betfred's, you can't yeah, go wrong with the Betfred's. Go. There's always a betting shop, isn't there? So when I was here th- in Oxford... Hang on, there's a Threshers. Yeah, I thought they closed down. No. Didn't they? I haven't seen Threshers London. for years. Do you not travel outside London? No, of no. course <laughs> I wouldn't dream of it. So when I grew up here, I got given for my eighth birthday a book called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And it was like Arthur C. Clarke, who I think turned out to be a massive paedophile, unfortunately, <laughs> and went to live in Sri Lanka for various reasons. 
Um, Sunshine, nice fears. And small children. children. But but anyway, that aside, he did do this great TV series where he sort of did lots of these unexplained things. And the thing that really got me was the sort of dodgy Super 8 footage of, of Bigfoot and pictures of the Loch Ness Monster. And also I'd been raised on Tintin in Lebanon. I read nothing but Tintin. I had a map in my bedroom of all the places that Tintin had been to. And I honestly, I'd said, I'm going to go to all these places when I grow up, and I have now. So Tintin was my big travel inspiration. Wasn't Tintin a bit racist? Okay, two bits about Tintin. Firstly, the odd thing is Tintin made me want to travel, but when I eventually did a documentary on Tintin, it turns out that Hergé never left Belgium. Uh-huh. Never. Seriously? But he had a friend, who John de Moor, who would go everywhere and send back photos. So everything you read in Tintin, from the... the posters in China or whatever is bang on the cars he had this kind of encyclopedia of images but he'd never travelled himself Tintin in the Congo which is the one you're talking about which is particularly racist (laughs) was an early one because it's dealing with Congo it's dealing with uh, the Belgian Congo they were the worst of all colonial masters I lived uh, in Belgium for a while. They're a bit old. Since they are old. They? Well, I love Belgium. Yeah, personally. I, love, I do. I, I think really they're love cool it, French. Yeah. Everything yeah. you think is cool and French is Belgian. I was in Antwerp, and that was yeah, really especially cool. But I went to to the Congo to to this. There's a thing called the Macalian Bembe, which is a monster that blocks the rivers apparently. And it was in the north of the Congo. And I went to the Congo thinking I'm not going to tell them that I'm here because I kind of wanted to go to the Congo because Tintin in Congo. They love Tintin in the Congo because it defined them as like. We exist. I've been to French colonies or Belgian colonies that Tintin never wrote about. They're so angry. They make their own fake... I've got a Tintin in Vietnam cover because they want to be done. Having said that, Tintin in the Congo, I remember reading Tintin to my kids, and they loved it all. And I got to the Congo, and they were like, what? I mean, he kills, apart from the racism, he kills 400 animals in that book. There's one where he, he shoots a rhino and it bounces off. So he gets on a tree drills a hole, puts dynamite in it, blows it up. It is the most politically incorrect book in the world. And also kids might try and repeat that at home and I that's going to be it. disastrous. Not many rhinos in the Cotswolds for me, so I was safe. There's <laughs> not many left in the world now, no. so we're all right really, isn't But it? actually, it is a despicable book, but actually in fairness he was, not fairness, but in the same way that Winston Churchill was of his time, the Belgians were a repulsively awful colonial race and that was their view of it. And actually to me it's interesting I, th- I don't think it should be banned because it actually everyone who reads it who's normal to me anyway looks at it and goes this is insane and it makes my kids realise there was a time when people felt like yes. that and I think that's much more important than sanitising it and taking the cigarettes out of Tintin's thing I know that doesn't help and the Congolese love that I mean they love that so book. educational in two different ways educational I, I re- when you were a kid to encourage you to travel and education yeah but even now, I see it through the eyes but even I I mean I wasn't a woke kid but I knew reading Belgian you know the Tintin in the Congo that Hergé was not a nicer man as I thought and you know stuff. I, I didn't know that reading Eden, Enid Blyton and I just sort of you know absorbed it all in and it turns out she was a writer racist and well, I mean, there was a, sexist and homophobic well there was a title of one of hers that gave it away wasn't there oh yes there was actually yeah, yeah which yeah. was a big <laughs> it was yeah. a big giveaway but I, I didn't think. read that no. you know, growing up with a well it was you know, probably called something else dad, as well I, uh, I didn't read that one I don't know yeah I didn't realise she, was she really that bad but they uh, were all that so, bad yeah. frankly back mm. then so did you find any evidence of Bigfoot and monsters okay and so like decided that? to become a monster hunter because of that because I love Tintin in, in Tibet and the and I thought, how do you become a monster hunter? And actually, it turns out it's really easy. You just go and get a business card printed that says Dom Jolly Monster, monster Hunter, hunter yeah. and you're there. And the best part of being a monster hunter is when you arrive at an airport. So the first place I went, I think, was Vancouver. I was after a thing called Ogopogo, which is Canada's Loch Ness. And they went, and your reason for visiting Canada, sir? And I go, 
I'm a monster hunter. <laughs> and they're all going, right, take him to a side room. Like, monster hunters, rubber they know you're on. nuts. Yeah, really, is rubber gloves. But no, I didn't. And one of the problems with monster hunting in itself, if you watch a TV show or a book, is you think, hmm, if he has found a monster, we'd probably have heard about it on the news. So he hasn't. So the book was more about the weirdness of those people that get obsessed about trying to find those monsters and stuff. But having said that, there's a lot more into monsters than I thought. You know, if you believe in Bigfoot, you think, well, maybe it's possible. Do you but believe? actually, well, A, I thought Bigfoot mainly is supposed to be in Northern California. How can you hide something in, in California? When you go to Northern California, I mean, there's 200 miles of coast called the Lost Coast, where there isn't even a road by it, and it's totally overgrown. So it is possible. California isn't all LA. There is this massive, you know, hidden area. But there's scientific things, like if you believe in Bigfoot, you have to believe that there's a big enough bunch of them to breed and keep going, so all that stuff. So the most believable one I, I came to was the Yeti, actually, because I found some Sherpas when I was walking up, quite a few of them, who now all have mobile phones. So when they're walking, they take pictures. And I'd be talking about what I was here for in the Yeti, and they talk matter-of-factly matter about yes, there was something or whatever. And then they go, oh, in fact, just the other day. So they weren't doing this. Got this on my phone. Yeah, they did. And, and, <laughs> Winking and waving you know, from the bush. But they weren't like, oh, my God, I'm sending this to CNN or something. <laughs> they were just like, and they sort of flick through and they go, I found this set of weird footprints. Now, whether it is a mythical, you know, who knows what the Yeti is. But And then the, the Bigfoot, I found, believe, were the Indians who live up in that area of Northern California, the Hoopi, had, uh, they always talked about a lost tribe of Indians that were these hairy Indians and stuff. I mean, there is a... There's, there's, there's more people. to it than I thought. But the people that always find Bigfoot and go looking for it are always mentalists, including me. <laughs> but it's good fun. I imagine and also, on the when visa your kids, application as well, you know, because sometimes oh, if you put journalist, you're like, oh, I think I might put something so else. Good. Well, know, I put like... comedian normally, and that doesn't go down well. But imagine having kids, as I do. It's like, what does your dad do? He dresses as a squirrel, drinks, no, you don't want that. He's a dark tourist. He's a what? That's a bit racist. But then you go, he's a monster hunter. Yeah, my dad was a dark tourist. Well. Yeah, but he actually was. He's a literally yeah. a dark tourist. So when I say, basically, I'm a monster hunter, finally my kids were like, stay with that. That's so cool. My dad's a monster hunter. <laughs> so where, where else have you been then? Where has been your, your, your best travel experience? One that we haven't covered. Look at that bus. It's bright gold. You've got gold buses here. Oh, yeah, everything's what? gold here. Yeah. Everything, the, the streets, the, the, the buses streets. are paved with gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're so happy about Brexit here, I think. That's why. Oh, is it a Brexit area? I think it is quite Brexit. Yeah. Actually, Oxford itself in the centre probably isn't, but all the areas around have, yeah, heavy Brexit. I've been to a lot of areas in the Cotswolds. I've written guidebooks for the Cotswolds have you? for uh, Thomas Cook, yeah, and one to Warwick and one to Stratford and Avon. Um, but there was a lot of Cotswoldy stuff going on there, a lot of cream teas consumed. Cream teas is always a good guidance to you in a Brexit area. It, it, it is, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cream teas or people from Kent. Yeah, My feeling is definitely. you should just give, give Brexiteers Kent. And they can have Kent. Well, they can have Kent. The Isle of Sheppey is sort of. They can have Kent, yeah, Kent and the Isle of Wight, and we'll keep the rest. That's my feeling. This will go down well. Now there'll be a lot of abuse. No, I don't think so because I think most people that listen to this podcast are travellers. So we're in Summertown here. Can I give you an interesting fact? Yes, Summertown is is right here, which is now Joe's Bar and Grill. In 1976, when I came to the Dragon School here, first place I ever went out to eat was a little place called the Cat Saison. And it was Raymond Blanc's first little tiny restaurant. Seriously? his French brasserie, which literally had red and white checkered tables. And I remember he did a rack of lamb with the little hats on. And that was so exotic in England that time. And from there, he's gone on to 
le manoir or katsis or whatever. But that's that's really posh. Is that the, oh, the meal insane. that your parents when they dropped oh, when yeah, they yeah. dropped you off for school they took you to a posh oh, restaurant? Oh, totally. But that wasn't posh in those days. I mean, that way it was posh, but it was still like it's, a little it's French posh for seventy-six to have yeah, like ribs so. and little hats. But I have a theory that a French name. I have a theory that uh, Raymond Blanc. He's been here what thirty years now. His French accent gets worse and worse, uh-huh. and I think he's actually called Ray White. And when he leaves the, the, the studio, he's got a total other life. But anyway, we're going to I was thinking that. about the name, actually, and just thinking that in the 70s, yeah. I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day, how anything French, you know, how suddenly you had a lounge oh, yeah, and yeah. a duvet. A chaise longue. A chaise longue and a, <laughs> a serviette, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you yeah, know, because yeah. that was a very aspirational yeah. middle class, wasn't yeah. it? So I imagine the quatre saisons was, uh, you know, sort of oh, God. fitted into that whole sort of... But to be fair to him, all he was doing was bringing a pretty good brasserie that most French towns had whereas England just was a culinary disaster zone it was still faulty towers and what's a Caesar salad and things like that so it wasn't that posh it was just posh in the sense that it wasn't a pub you know, so he did start it off. Now he's possibly gone too far, but <laughs> discuss. Um, so where, where else? What have I missed in terms of your travel experiences? It's so hard, isn't it? Because you've travelled to so many Well, my places. problem is I'm a travel junkie. I've done, not you're supposed to count, I've done 93 countries. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's annoying because I want to do 100. Well, what's what's left to, uh, to tick off? Oh, my God. Okay, so that's, let's talk about where I'd really like to go. Yeah. So my absolute number one place I want to go is Algeria. Uh, oh, that's a very and, interesting one. And twice I've, went, I've nearly gone to Algeria and then something's happened there and you haven't been able to get in. And on, close to that as well is Leptis Magna in Libya, which are the best Roman ruins in the world that are in Libya. So those are the two places I really want to go to I haven't gone to. And Yemen and an island called Socotra, which is just off Aden, which is this weird island. It's got incredible, uh, so, incredible sort of wild, its own sort of ecosystem. And, and great diving, and I love diving. So those are my sort of three big places I want to go to. I know you're a big current affairs junkie, aren't yeah. you? Because I was showing off to you earlier about my John Simpson. Yeah. Collection. Oh my God, I'm so. I mean, John Simpson to me, when I grew up in Lebanon, the the, the fact that I'm a comedian is insane. I'm not really a comedian anymore. I hope I'm more a travel writer because comedian wasn't a job. Growing up in Lebanon, the really glamorous things were diplomats, who I now realise are just actually quite dull civil servants nowadays foreign correspondents who are just amazing and, and sort of travel writers essentially so I grew up loving great travel writers and foreign correspondents so Robert Fisk, uh, loved people like John Simpson, uh, Hugh Pope was someone who used to stay at our place Jim Muir, like all the Middle East great correspondents used to stay at our house in Lebanon anyway and I used to think that's what I would do I want to write a great travel book, my parents had a connection with Freya Stark all these people used to travel you know, great Arabists and Orientalists and stuff so that to me was what I wanted to to be. Why were they all staying at your house? Just we had a really nice house above Beirut and my dad kind of really did ran the family business but was just into writing and loved writers and you know he was a well-read guy and he just had loads of connections so I was really lucky to have or you know John McCarthy was at our place I think the day before he got kidnapped <laughs> and you know we were a kind of hub if you came to Lebanon you came and had lunch with us so I was really lucky in that way. My family were living in in Smyrna they were part of the Levant Trading Company, which were these kind of weird little islands within the Ottoman Empire that were like Hong Kong. You know, it was like a tax-free zone, and you went and you had your own rules and stuff. And that's how they ended up there. And they were there for about three generations. And when uh, one of them moved to Beirut, a lot of them were all arrested during the First World War because, obviously, the Ottomans sided with the Germans. And they were all moved to this Crusader castle 
on the Syrian-Turkish border. And they were there for four years in this place and had the Armenian Holocaust going on around them. We're not allowed to call it Holocaust, but the Armenian incidents with the Turks. <laughs> um, and so when they got released, my, my great-granddad wrote a debriefing note of 80 pages for the Foreign Office, which I've just got hold of. So that's going to be my next book, I think, is going from Smyrna across Turkey to this place called Urfa, which is right on the border, and try and find this Crusader castle and stuff. Do you think you... Because you've, you've got... How old are your kids? Uh, 19, uh, 18 and 15. Oh, that's all right. They don't take much looking after, I'm guessing, she says dismissively with a seven-year-old. Well, I mean, I've been travelling since I had them, really. And, yeah, my wife left Toronto because she was a Canadian with itchy feet and spent four years literally travelling on her own around Japan and all sorts of weird places. Finally gets to England, meets me, thinks time to settle down, and then off I go writing for the Sunday Times and that stuff. But my kids have got my travel bug. I mean, we, we drove from Cotswolds to Istanbul and back on what all our friends called the big divorce tour. <laughs> and actually, it was the best holiday we had. We argued less on that holiday than most of that. And my daughter, I taught all the world capitals from the age of two. And she just did it in her... There was some weird exam she had to do. And literally, no one else knew the capital. I can't remember what the... I th- oh, it was Madagascar and Tanarivo. And she was so chuffed that I taught it to her. And I was like, yes, I knew it'd be useful one day. Do you know day. what? My mum did that with me. Did and she? Every now I love and then it. I get like some tiny African country, the capital like springs into my head. And, you know, if you're in a pub quiz or something oh, and it comes in, but isn't like, it good? Yes, it's it's so feeling. essentially useless. But yeah, when you totally know it, useless, oh, yeah. you feel so good. It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> it is the best. But first. she had, she's much more logical than me and my daughter. She's incredibly smart. So she had things like, I'm trying to remember how she remembered it, uh, capital of Pakistan. Is Lama good? No, is Lama bad? And uh, uh-huh, yes. key to a door is Ecuador. And like, she had all her ways of remembering it. It's the best way to do it. But I love that. I know what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Bear Grylls. Oh, God. Tell yeah. us about that experience. So, it was, is it Celebrity Island, it's called? No. It's called? No, what's it called? It was minor, minor Celebrity Island. Minor, very minor. No, celeb- is just that called, next to major Celebrity Island? No, it's just called, it was called The Island. The with Island. Bear Grylls. Right. It's now the new one. It's called Treasure Island because now they, they bloody drop... I don't know if you've seen it, the new one's just started. No, now they have the same thing, but they drop boxes of cash what? from parachutes around the island. So not only have you got people you don't get on with and you're starving and you're unhappy, but occasionally you stumble across a box of 100 grand and you've got to decide whether to share it with the island or obviously keep it yourself. So it's become a much better show. That's crazy. Now, Bear Grylls the Island, I did, because I've done a lot of these shows and I can't say no to them, but I can tell you right now that of all the things I've ever done in the world, the hardest thing I've ever done was the island. It was two weeks. I did not eat a single thing. I lost two and a half stone in 14 days. We barely drank. I nearly died. I had... I'll show you a picture later, which will not be great for the (laughs) podcast, but you can put it on your podcast. And it's my leg where sandflies had buried eggs in it. It was the worst thing I've ever done. But I'm so pleased I lasted it. It's so difficult. Now, Bear Grylls, I always think when you see someone on telly, I always call them Ronnie Barker or Ronnie Corbett, showing my age. You know whether they're basically good guys or bad guys. Bear Grylls, I've always been in two minds of, because I've met yeah, people who've said, you know what, he's a great guy, he knows everyone's name on the crew, he's a bit of a Christian, which is always a bit of a worry for me, a bit of a God-botherer. His dad was a Tory minister. And then I've, met, then I've met people, and I've seen things, where you know he stayed in five-star hotels, there's a classic bit on YouTube where he's hopping around a dangerous lava flow and then suddenly there's a tourist shooting the same thing and he's by an interstate but that's telly a lot of that so I met him we went to Panama where it's filmed spent two days being trained by Bears Marines 
and they were really lovely blokes and stuff and we got quite close to them and then on the day we were going onto the island Bear suddenly appears bear shirted because I think it's in his contract he has to take his shirt off it brings the women in and he's wearing these shades and he's suddenly there and we're having our photograph taken with Bear Grylls and then he's at the the wheel of the of a boat driving us out there looking all macho and we're like we hate Bear Grylls and and the crew are going oh my god he's going to do the bear prayer which is apparently before he drops you off into this place he does a little prayer and of course it's never shown on telly and the crew keep going don't bother with the bear prayer never show but they do but just as I thought what a wanker I'm sitting there a bit nervous I'm about to be dropped off he suddenly sits next to me he appears like Jesus and he's like yeah he really is he put his top on for me which was nice and he goes Dom massive trigger happy fan and I'm suddenly like God, Bear Grylls is such a nice bloke but then when we got on the island I realised that he'd done that to everyone like even I'm sorry but Bear Grylls does not watch The Only Way is Essex but he was like God love The Only Way is Essex amazing what you guys do yeah love the way you just got that you know (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know you know what but that's a technique isn't it and that to me smacks of the sort of person I assume he is and I'm like you I was in two minds he's definitely a business guy exactly the the sort of person that remembers your name all the time and uses it which I'm always mistrustful of yeah exactly but then I actually someone told me the other day that you know I'm terrible with names and the reason people use people's names is it's a, a technique to remember names. Yeah, of course, yeah. I think the best way to look at Bear Grylls is compare and contrast with his nearest rival, Ray Mears. Now, Ray Mears is an overweight man that looks like he spends a lot of time in Kentucky Fried Chicken. And yet, and my favourite Ray Mears moment is in the middle of the Amazon jungle. He's with three lost villagers in the Amazon who almost barely speak English. They've never met anyone like him before. And Ray is asking them, how do you start fire? And they bring out a cigarette lighter, which is fantastic. And Ray Mears goes, okay. And, but then he starts trying to teach them their ancient method. And they're like, but we don't fucking need yeah, that. Yeah, we've got a cigarette yeah. lighter. So I don't know. Between those two, Ray Mears is equally odd. And I just think it's people that live in the wild are quite odd. Yeah. But I think Bear is a bit more savvy. Well, I've heard from, you know, I've had proper SAS guys on well, here. if you mention you're in the SAS, then you're not in the SAS, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've had some proper ones, I hate they, although they have mentioned it, but I think it's documented. But yeah. I, they were like, oh, he was in the TA or something like that. Of course he was. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he was in the reserves. Yeah, still, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? But you I know what? Do what? He's he fitter, did. He's better fit, looking. He looks great with his top Richer off. than us, so like, <laughs> fucking good for And him. you know what? He yeah. remembers your name and remembers what you do for a yeah, living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Good on him. Yeah. If someone asked me, like you, what city should I go that I haven't been to? Sarajevo. Have you been to Sarajevo? No, but it's been on my oh list my for a long, long time. So I, I really want... I can visualise it. Because, it's incredible. You know, the bridge and the war and everything you can... But it's, it's, it's the war, but then it's also... My first memory in history classes were like the, the shot that started the First World War. and of And it was where Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand was shot. And my favourite, favourite travel fact of all time, and this is absolutely true, so I got there... And the story of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is he turns up in Sarajevo. There are four assassins waiting for him along the quay, and he's being driven in a car. And basically the first guy throws... No, the first guy chickens out. second guy throws a bomb, and it bounces off the car and, uh, and explodes, but underneath. So they drive him out of there. They get him to the town hall. He gives a speech, and then they're like, you know what, we've got to get you out of this town. So they're driving him out of the town, but instead of doing in the original thing he was going to go back and then in a tour of the town and no one had told the driver and so the third or fourth uh, assassin has really depressed he knows he's screwed up he's literally sitting at a cafe and the driver takes the wrong turn turns right and then gets told he's, t- he's got to take the wrong turn so he stops right opposite this assassin who just goes fuck it I've got to and kills him 
and I love that kind of weird you know it's it was that chance sliding door corner. stuff yeah, but the greatest fact and I saw it on a photo and I couldn't believe it is there's a picture of Franz Ferdinand's car just before it makes that turn and I looked at the um, I looked at the number plate and I was like it can't be and I looked again and I looked again and it absolutely is and in the end I had to be so sure the actual car is in a military museum in Vienna so I went to Vienna to check so what's the famous thing about Franz Ferdinand being shot it started the first world war yes. what's the number plate of Franz Ferdinand's car oh my god I 11 know. 11 18 which is the last day of the first world war and I was like no way it no cannot be way. I've seen this shit on Facebook so many times all these things can't be true it's absolutely true and that is the weirdest thing and it is oh, actually true I suppose there's so many conspiracy theories oh, everyone thinks photoshopped that. all that shit and then everyone's like oh it's Illuminati they all knew it was going to but it's, isn't that weird I mean that's just totally odd that is very weird so that's yeah. my favourite but I love Sarajevo if you've got nowhere else to go like you can't think of anywhere to go you can fly to somewhere like Split or Dubrovnik and you've got lovely oh, Croatia lovely. and then you drive up through Bosnia-Herzegovina you go through Mostar where the bridge was blown up and they've rebuilt it and you end up in Sarajevo which is literally where east meets west you know it's got minarets vying with 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 church steeples it's got this incredible history of the war recently but also of past wars and then it had the winter olympics there so it's got an abandoned bobsleigh run above which they've turned into a roller coaster i mean it's the most incredible town oh I'll, I'll have to put that on my list yeah so the new book is out now the new book is out now it's called the hezbollah hiking club and it's basically my first proper travel book where i haven't my other travel books have always been like lots of different trips so dark tourist was six different trips so was scary monsters this one was my attempt to get a bit more grown up and do a full long story and it's the fact that i grew up in lebanon but because the war happened when i was young i never really saw all of lebanon my parents and my elders and brothers and sisters always used to travel around and i found out about this thing called the lebanon mountain trail which is these lebanese desperate to get tourists to lebanon because no one goes there and they should set up this 27 day walking trail from the Syrian border to the Israeli border. You can do it either way. And I thought, right, I've got to do it. So I got two friends who'd never been to the Middle East, and off we went. And we were totally unfit, and <laughs> we really shouldn't have been doing it. But in the end, it was an amazing experience. And, and the book is about me going back to Lebanon, kind of facing quite a lot of demons, family-wise and stuff, but also just about how amazing Lebanon is. And it's also about growing old disgracefully with my friends. And I'm talking about it at the Cheltenham literature festival coming up on october the 7th i think and since i live in cheltenham i've actually i've just lived outside cheltenham and i've finally i've just bought a house in cheltenham itself so this is the first time that i'll actually walk to my gig at the cheltenham lit festival which i'm quite chuffed with very nice you can just stroll to work yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and i hear it's a very good festival as well it is really good actually genuinely so we've got some listeners questions for you yeah um (laughs) why are you such a (laughs) <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> My listeners are very nice. Yeah. Does your big mobile get switched to flight mode on trips? Oh, God. Has uh, that followed you everywhere, that big yeah. mobile? Uh, it doesn't. But actually, once I had to take it to America when I was filming in America with it, and it was just after 9-11, so it was an absolute nightmare because I basically had to explain. I mean, it's bad enough explaining to your in-laws. My, in, my wife's Canadian. You know, like, what does he actually do? He shouts into a big mobile. Well, that's his job. Like, so it was bad enough. But I had to take it into America, and they were so security conscious at the time. And so obviously they said, well, can you turn it on to prove it works? I said, no, it doesn't work. It's like, so they go, so you're just carrying a big cell. I go, look, please, this is my life. Yeah, just, and in the end, they kind of let me through. I think they felt so bad for me. Not known for their sense of humour at no, customs in never. the States, are they? Being a travel writer is the absolute worst thing 
for immigration. Like immigration and travel writing are completely not not at odds. I always lie about yeah, yeah, the reason yeah. I'm there. So that was from Gabby. Anthony, Tony says, are you trigger happy? No, I'm trigger unhappy. I'm an ex-goth. <laughs> but I grew up in Beirut, so I'm very trigger happy. I do love guns. You I, like a gun, do you? I love guns, do yeah. You? I just went... I mean, I really disapprove of... It's not very, of, like, PC, is it? Well, it's nothing to do with PC. I mean, I totally disapprove of the fact that you can Killing wander around people. with open carry and uh, disagree with all Trump's guns policies. But I've just driven through Utah, and when I got to Nevada... I just took my kids and we went to a gun range and we fired all sorts of guns. We had a brilliant time. But that doesn't mean I'm going to go and shoot up a McDonald's. Well, not yet. Well, that's, that's good. Actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, you never know if you have a you bad never day. Know. Yeah. Uh, you should do a TV programme about Trump and guns in America. Oh, God, no, I couldn't. I'd be too angry. Stuart Bailey says, which is the most quintessential English village in the Cotswolds? He says, Bowton on the water? Bowton? Bowton? Bowton, Bowton, on Bowton. The water. yeah, Bowton. Well, I mean, Bowton on the water is great. It's what we call a c- magnet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's it's supposed to be the We've Venice... We've had a lot of F words yeah. on the podcast. Right. We haven't had any I'll C words. I'll change that then. No, no, I can. Right. Uh, I'll beep right. it yeah, out. Yeah. I'll beep it out. I mean, basically, I those, those spaces are very useful because every Japanese tourist, every idiot tourist turns up there and goes there and leaves our villages alone. Born on the Water is called the Venice of the Cotswolds, which is... I mean, Birmingham is called the Venice of the Midlands. Yeah, what does that mean? That, yeah. uh, it basically, it's a very weird place. It's one of those weird places that has nothing real in it anymore. Everything is yieldy tea shoppies and stuff. And it's awful. But I've filmed something for every comedy show I've ever done in Bourton on the Water. I did the Morris so dancer tweet. there. Well, no, because it's perfect British backdrop. And you just get this kind of revolving door of gullible tourists who will believe anything I say. So it's perfect. So yeah. are you calling Japanese tourists I'm calling all tourists All tourists are yeah. I like it. Emma, my friend Emma, actually, this is a very serious question. And it's a good, it's a good question, actually. Yeah. She's the CEO of a wonderful charity that do heart operations. They're called Chain of Hope. Right. And they do heart operations for children in developing countries. I don't like to talk about my charity. Oh, well, he said, she said, can you come to the Chain of Hope ball, which is a really oh. fabulous ball. Yeah, do I have, have to, to wear black tie? People. I don't know. No, you get loads of rappers there and they're in all in oh, their okay. rap gear. Yeah, as long as I can rap, that's yeah. fine. Uh, yeah, no, I'd love to. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. She'd really like that. I always right. help out and look after okay. the celebrities, so no, I'll I'd be waiting to. on the door for you. Oh, brilliant. Simon Adams says, what is the most random location which someone has shouted to you, hello? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really good. I actually had it in North Korea. And uh, I went to North Korea, and the only way you can get in North Korea is doing a, a coach tour, an organised coach tour with the government. And the irony of it is that the only people that want to go to North Korea are hardened backpackers whose idea of hell is a fucking coach tour. But actually, it's kind of fun because it's so awful. And we got to, a, we, get, we got taken to a, a bowling alley, which is one of the few human things in Pyongyang. And it was very weird. It was for high party officials. And as you went in, like everywhere, there was a gold bowling ball in a case. And apparently Kim Jong-il had turned up just tried his hand and got perfect strikes all the way through. As he would, as he would. And I went in, and the British... No, it wasn't the British ambassador, it was the Swedish ambassador was there, and the Swedish ambassador looked after British interests. And for some reason, Trigger Happy being big in, in, in Sweden. And I went in, and he goes, Hello, I'm in North Korea. No, it's shit. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll have that. So that was great. And it was a bit shit. So it was... Way. No, I loved North Korea. You, yeah. Well, I mean, it was I've shit. It's shit if you live it. there, but yes, oh, my God. If you're visiting... If you're a traveller, it's the place to go. Unless God. you're that guy that, that took the poster and then... Well, then you're an idiot. I was with a guy, with a, a guy who... He was a Finn, and he said he was a, a priest in the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monsters. You know that... He was a deliberate no, contrarian. They're these people who basically, they take pictures of themselves with a colander on their head. They basically tried to get, they, they're so anti-religion, that they tried to get their own made-up religion, which is Pastafarianism, right, in, in, to be made an official 
thing. Anyway, it's too boring to go in, but the guy was an idiot. And we went somewhere, we went to a museum, one of the few places you could see old Korean artefacts. There was this beautiful old drum. He took his shoe off and started smacking the drum. So not only was that a massive offence shoe-wise, but it was that, and we nearly got lynched in uh, on the border zone. So, yeah. You do not do that. No, you don't do that. I mean, he was the, beyond... The poster beyond. guy got arrested and then died. No, I'm prison. surprised. Yeah. I'm, yeah, but he was... I think he had some Korean in him, which kind of gives them the excuse to... They're like, you're not really foreign. I'm thinking of a really Korean. bad joke. I know, I know. Got, do you yeah, want yeah, some? But, yeah. Prison, yeah. 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 But this guy was a fin. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> not very funny at no. all, really, but... That'll go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my friend Rob Richards, he's a DJ in Brighton, says, can you talk or are you in a library? Uh, we were in a car, Jesus actually. Jesus Christ, I'll never get over it. I'm in a library. Actually, I did a thing in the library recently in Brighton. I, oh, well, that's, Rob's from Brighton. Yeah, well, no, that's why there. I did wow, that's why I did co- it. Strange but that's why I did it. So one of my, I did a new vamp Trigger Happy called Trigger Happy, not Trigger Happy TV, because it's TV is dead. And one of my favourite characters in that was Cycle Lane. So it was one of those people with just the camera on their helmet and basically just deal, dealing with everywhere as a cycle lane, because that's what they do. And I went through Brighton Library... And the librarian in there said, you can't cycle in here. I go, this is a cycle lane. She goes, what? I go, they've just put a cycle lane uh-huh. in. And she went, oh, I'm really sorry, and wandered off. So Brighton Library are very nice. They're, they're like the old ramblers, aren't yeah, they? No, There's yeah, a pass totally. through here. They're like, we absolutely are, fine. We, are going, yeah, yeah. To, we yeah. are going to take it. Actually, talking about these things, following you around, Alex George, who's the editor of this podcast, he will edit it for me. Yeah, um, he good said luck that, with that even though, Yeah, good luck with that, Alex. Try I'm finding a breath. To him. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with our little observations out the window. Yeah. He, uh, he said that even now, he sends people video of the snails, the okay. snail crossing the road. See, that's better. The snail, I mean... Big mobile. Big mobile was just it was just a thing, you know, and it was kind of the thing that everyone knew about Hansi and Trigabi, but it bored the shit out of me. Big snail, I love. That's one of my favourite sketches. And what I love about the big snail is like I, I think three nights before in the pub, I thought snail crossing the road, people will stop. And I was at a stage where I could just get someone to build a snail costume, and then we were doing it. But in England, That's power, isn't it? That's it was real power. power. But like, I also I knew. Big snail, I'm I also one. knew that in England, people would stop for a snail. Whereas I always thought, if I did that, just crawling across the road with all the traffic waiting in America, four rednecks would have got out of a pickup truck and battered me to death as a Mexican snail. So yeah, it was a very British joke. Steve Plunkett says, "What was the worst reaction you've received to one of your trigger happy pranks?" Well, I nearly got beaten up by a nun. Um, <laughs> I was in Londis in Notting Hill, and the joke was that I'd taken over the tannoy and I was dressed as a security guard. So when people came in, we'd go, bloke with red trousers, white top, he's, uh, he's over there in the, uh, in the groceries. And then I'd go around and just sort of stare at him as though he was shoplifting and it would get awkward. And a nun walked in and we were all like, oh, should we, shouldn't we? And I was like, come on, nun, comedy staple. So up it went and I nodded and he went, yeah, the nun's back, she's by the yogurts. So I go around the corner and I start staring at the nun. I'm wearing these kind of mirrored shades. And she went utterly mental. And there was a big pile of baked bean cans. She started throwing them at me. She was fucking swearing and c***ing and all sorts of stuff at me. And, and then stormed out. And I'm still not sure whether she was a real sweary nun or a stripogram. I don't know. But, or someone uh, from a rival TV show, surely. Possibly. But uh, we, we were early then. There weren't any rival TV shows. I know. Uh, nuns can be quite violent. My dad used to get beaten up. Well, nuns are violent. Yeah, I mean, are. we know that. I, I, I think it yeah. was just an angry nun. When I grew up in Spain, a bit like you maybe growing up in Lebanon, we didn't yeah. have access to like popular culture and we yeah. were desperate for any VHSs we yeah, got yeah. from England. So one of the things I had was a whole box set of Candid Camera. Oh my God, so did I. Really? But that's where I started. I, I had two. I had one, I had Candid Camera, which was quite cool actually. Candid I mean, Camera was amazing. It, was, it had some really surreal moments of it. And then I had one from South Africa called Funny People, which was really funny. 
but really racist. I now realise. So it was basically was like, everything like damaging black people. Well, no, it was just white boas taking the piss out of black people that were working for them. But the jokes were really funny. But it just now I realise the socio-economic dynamic. You know, it's terrible. It was funny, but it was wrong funny now. It's it was a bit like, like you don't like Nazi experiments. Do you use no the, you exactly? Know, the jokes yeah, yeah, yeah. That come from it. Well, I did use some of them, but I didn't do it in a bad way. And then uh, I had Benny Hill as well. Like in, in growing up in Lebanon, I had Benny Hill as well. We had Benny Hill, but Lebanese TV always had subtitles below in Arabic and French, and I speak Arabic and French, and both. Someone did the French subtitles, some did the Arabic subtitles. They were nothing to do with what was going on with Benny Hill. So there'll be times where people were laughing three times at three different jokes. I mean, I think the guy doing the Arabic subtitles was going for his own show. Like, it was totally different. And again, Benny Hill, totally wrong. Like, Candid what? Candid Camera, I don't remember people speaking about that. I don't know. Did they, well, was it big? Well, English Candid Camera was Jonathan Ruth, and it was okay, and then it got more and more smug. But the original Candid Camera, like, way back in, in America, I mean, that was the first time reality TV existed. It was the first time that an ordinary member of the public became the star. It was quite subversive in those days, and it was really surreal. The famous one ever was a guy who took the engine out of his car and then got in the car and rolled down the hill into a petrol station. This is like 1947, and he goes, something's wrong with the engine, can you have a look? Uh-huh. And the guy opens the engine, there's no engine. It's amazing, it's really simple, but it's good. 1947? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I probably made that up. But it's it good, it's, it's a it long time ago. It was black and white, I'm going to ask you my last question. Yeah, go on, we've just arrived is, back at Oxford Parkway. We've just arrived, which is, See how good way, that is? when I arrived here, because yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere and it's yeah. just a massive car You thought car this park. is a prank, didn't you? No, no, I knew, yeah, <laughs> I did expect you to be dressed as a squirrel. Yeah. When I asked the guy, I said, is this the main entrance? He said, yes, to Oxford Parkway, like thinking that I'd been disappointed that I can't see any beautiful oh, there must be place. so many Japanese tourists that yeah, get, get off, off here, here thinking yeah. well Oxford's not quite what they've made out to me <laughs> no, yeah. he, he actually thought that was me yeah. I was like, it's okay I know what I'm doing yeah. just you know it is a big car park in the middle of nowhere yeah. so while we're pulling into the car park I'm going to ask you my last yeah. question because my last question is always about music oh goody because I think that music and travel go hand in hand well music's my big love more I, than travel or comedy so yeah I would I, I think I knew that and yeah. I'm, I'm the same so I'd, I'd love to be able to play music on the podcast oh my god I so would I yeah no that's so annoying but the, the last question is always about music and actually yeah. you'd love when John Simpson was on my podcast you'd yeah. love his answer to this Go on. because he had the perfect answer it was in you know it started out, out, out like something like well I was in a thousand year old market in the centre of Baghdad and I found this old gramophone and you're like yes that's, that's exactly why he's BBC senior diplomatic correspondent because set a fucking scene alright exactly. I'm going to try and beat really, yeah, see on. if you can beat John Simpson so my question is if it's, you had to choose one song yeah. that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel mm. what would that song be oh, and I've where were it. you oh I'm, I'm going to beat John Simpson I think. oh are you brilliant yeah. so growing up my parent my dad was old school and he really didn't like pop music at all the only thing I remember him sort of allowing us to play was Simon and Garfunkel Sound of Silence and stuff but in the car, we had a Range Rover, because we used to get, like, the very early Range Rover, because it was like a Land Rover, and we'd go off into the Syrian desert. And the one thing he had in it that was quite cool was an 8-track, those things you kind of slammed in like big cartridges. But you couldn't get many 8-tracks, so he had his opera and stuff like that. But for some reason, we had Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here. And so he kind of accepted it, and because there's a sort of element of classical to some Pink Floyd... It was very weird. He's like, I hate pop music, but we'd always go on these expeditions and we'd be listening to Shine On You, Crazy Diamond and stuff. And when I went and did my first travel show, my first TV travel show, it was a show for Sky. It was called Excellent Adventure. And they said, go and recreate something you always wanted to do. And I kind of went and did this journey that I used to do when I was a kid. And we left Beirut and we drove on a road trip into Syria just before the whole civil war kicked off. And we ended up outside Palmyra 
and there were these caves where I remember we always used to camp and I'd written my name in a cave and I wanted to try and find that because it really took me back. It was the first time I'd done an expedition on my own. And we ended up camping under these caves about 10 miles outside Palmyra. And at night, it was amazing, we lit a fire and we were on our own in the middle of the Syrian desert and it was this incredible, like, full moon and it was amazing. And we had the car, so we just opened the car and I had my iPod that I plugged into the car and just Wish You Were Here reminded me so much of... Syria anyway and so I put it full on the car and I, honestly I just sat there in the middle of the Syrian desert thinking I've got a TV show, I've been brought to Syria and it was this moon and uh, honestly it was so like spine chilling for me and we sat there and it was the, it was the greatest moment of my life was that. So beat that John Simpson but he probably did but it was beat that, so John. it was Wish You Were Here in the middle of the, middle of the Syrian desert. Oh that's brilliant, thank yeah. you so much for that and thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Oh thank you very much I loved our little tour around Oxford, Dom. Thank you so much. And you can catch Dom at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, so don't miss it. Next week, we're in Madrid having tapas with Spain travel and food expert James Blick. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.